Hello and welcome to the Fresh Air Sci-Fi Show. I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And we're here again on another blisteringly hot day. Uh, I think the pair of us are both struggling with the heat. Uh, I've got my fan here again. Like, do let me know if it, it starts coming through, and uh, I will alter uh, its direction. I'm trying to do my best to keep the mic and the fan out of alignment. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah, <laughs> yours is right behind. Thankfully, it's not coming through at all, though, Dave. I can't hear it. So, uh... if I move more than a foot away from the mic, nothing really gets picked up. Ah, so, uh, yeah. Uh... What's blistering hot for you? Um, over 30 degrees plus the humidity of being in a small box room that the only window is there that I can't get to to open and the computers and monitors and everything like that being on. Uh, that's what's blisteringly hot for, for me, Greg. Uh, but it has also been boiling hot outside. I mean, today hasn't been as hot as the last couple of days we went for a, a little walk uh, along the beach and you know i was only mostly drenched in sweat after uh, three kilometers <laughs> uh, do, uh dallas do you know what i i like summer but only if you're in the right environment you know like if you're on holiday somewhere you you can just be in the water you've got a drink in one hand and you got your significant other in the other you know that it's absolutely fantastic but uh i mean in the uk we don't really do air conditioning i mean it's not a thing over here like when i lived out in michigan it was amazing the house was cool all year round now the summer was actually a lot hotter uh because of the great lakes it was a lot more humid but you know you've got these amazing fridges which you've got this like ice machine that comes off of it and ice cold rooms from your air conditioning and it was definitely uh, a lot more livable than a summer in england and uh, i i really hope that aircon becomes more of a a, a thing over here too <laughs> Greg says he considers it to be the perfect temperature. Yeah, I mean, outdoors, maybe. I'd agree with you there, Greg. Um, I enjoy, if I can be in the sea or something or in a pool, I like it being that warm. I come out, I play about a bit, I dry off and jump back straight back in. But uh, <laughs> not not indoors, not indoors at all. It makes sleeping even more difficult than normal. Um, British houses are built to make sure that they keep the heat in of the old coal fires and stuff like that. So when it gets hot inside, it stays hot inside. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Um, so yeah, basically it's like a furnace. Although your your comment, the truth about perfect weather seems subjective. I mean that that ties in very nicely with uh, tonight, Greg. And yes, I would say the the uh, the perfect weather is. Uh, subjective to an individual for their preferences, although you could also say that there is the perfect weather for growing a certain crop, and that would be an objective standard. Some might need more sunlight, some might need more rainfall, some might need a, an adequate bit of both. So there, there is a contextually objective standard for perfect weather as well as our individual subjective preferences. <laughs> and I'm glad that's your intent as well, Greg. Uh, thank you. I'm glad you got onto the, the subject before I waffled on about the weather far too much. And it was probably going to be about half an hour of me doing so. 
It's what we British are best at, discussing the weather. (laughs) We moan that it's too cold and it's too wet, and then the second it's not, we moan about that too. Our basic, basically, our country and our houses and our people are just not built <laughs> for weather. <laughs> for any kind, yeah. <laughs> so tonight's show, uh, as uh, Greg brought it up, is about truth. So uh, we're going to be asking questions about, you know, what is truth? Uh, what are truth app statements? and uh, all, all those sorts of things. Um, and I wrote an article on it a little while ago, and as I was investigating uh, into it a little bit more, different theories of truth, and uh, it, I, I got a little bit confused, and there was a, a couple of days where I was like, I, I don't understand what this one <laughs> says. I don't know. Uh, but I figured it's probably good to sort of regale some of these findings and um, have a discussion about truth and how it can apply to things uh, in, in, in one of my favorite topics, which is morality as well, and see what any of you think uh, about the topic as well. Brent, nice to see you as well, uh, as well as you, Alan. And hey, Tyler. Uh, yes, the truth is the PC is simply better for FPS games. Uh, I'd agree with that. (laughs) But I think some people can be used to using a controller, so they might perform better on a controller than they would on a PC. But I think if someone equally trained in both of them, they would be better on the PC overall, unless they've got a game that's fully auto-aimed. For a spanner in that one, I use a controller on the PC. Yeah, I do sometimes, but not for FPS. <laughs> and for FPS. Shh. <laughs> but I bet if you actually learned to use a keyboard and mouse for that thing, Dave, you'd be better. <laughs> I can use a keyboard and mouse. I'm just very lazy. <laughs> That's fair. And when I play video games, it's downstairs, so it's easier to just lie back and use a controller. Yeah, makes sense. So I'm just going to quickly throw things into uh, Be Right Back. And uh, just so I can switch the screens around and we will get on with tonight's article and any comments that come in. Hopefully Dave can uh, pick them up and let me know. But I might, unless they're they're really pertinent to the section that we're on, might save any questions for the end. So the truth of it all. What is truth? How can we know if something is true? Do all statements hold a truth value? Can we have subjective truths? When not considered too deeply, these questions seem obvious, but upon greater consideration, they're far more complex. But there isn't everything. In this article, I hope to explain truth and truth app statements, give a basic overview of the various theories of truth, and how truth can apply to conversations about morality, inclusive of some of the common issues that come up when discussing truth. My goal is not to convince you of any of my positions on the other topics. I've explained where I stand a number of times on things like morality, for example. So I will just be using it as a tool to enhance my explanations of truth. What is truth? Truth is something that has the value of being true. It is something that is a fact that is not swayed by opinion. Or belief. Truth is binary. Something is true or not true. Something not true is false. 
This ties into the laws of logic, such as the law of non-contradiction. Something cannot be both true and false. For example, in a given moment, something cannot be both true and false, like something existing, or someone being alive, or the water having reached boiling temperature. It also ties into the law of excluded middle. There is no other option than something being true or false. From moment to moment, some truth values can change. Context could change the tr truth value too. Other things are true regardless of context. So what I mean there by uh, uh, from moment to moment, the truth value could change. Imagine boiling water again. Is the water boiling? It's not, it's not, it's not, it is, it is, it is, it's not, it's not. You know, that's the water reaching boiling temperature and starting to cool back down again. So in that individual moment where it is boiling, it's not not boiling, but it does move. So in summary, truth speaks of something that is, regardless of what we believe. So how can we tell if something's true? This is a much harder question, and to answer it, I feel we should start with the various theories of truth. There are actually quite a few theories of truth, but the most important ones are correspondence theory, coherence theory, semantic theory, pragmatic theory, and deflationary theory. The correspondence theory of truth is most simplistically put as that which is in accordance with reality. Uh, first proposed in a vague form by Plato and by Aristotle in his Metaphysics, this realist theory says truth is what propositions have by corresponding to a way the world is. The theory says that a proposition is true provided there exists a fact corresponding to it. In other words, for any proposition or P, P is true if and only if P corresponds to a fact. It's a really simplistic version of truth and it does make sense. Water is wet, or at least water makes things wet, should I say. The snow is white. The air we breathe is made up mostly of nitrogen and circa 21% oxygen, for etc, etc. On the surface, it seems like that's all we really need to describe truth, but it is open to issues. For example, we know that we're not really experiencing all of reality. People with an extra cone in their eye can see far more colours than most of us. At best, our experience of reality is a hallucination we all agree on. So then, does this make what is true what everyone agrees to be true. It seems we would disagree with that as well, for example, that most people in the world agree that there is some sort of deity, and we atheists would disagree with this. Most people in the world believe in the Abrahamic deity, and other religions would disagree with this, along with us atheists. Most people in the world who believe in the Abrahamic deity believe in the Christian version, and Muslims and Jews would disagree with that version. So it would seem that we need more than just an agreement over what is true. Science can come into play with the physical realm, of course. Test, repeat, display the results, and there can be a consensus around the interpretation of the results. Of course, science doesn't really deal with proving things absolutely true, just showing that with rigorous testing, they haven't been shown to be false yet, so are considered true at least for now. This does rely on certain presuppos presuppositions about reality though, which can obviously lead to some objections. 
A common objection to science might be along the lines of someone taking a solipsistic. Uh, sol- <laughs> solipsistic. <laughs> Words. Uh, a solipsistic <laughs> approach. <laughs> or that we are in a computer simulation. Whilst this could be true, I think we should work within the parameters of our environment. Even if we are just brains in a vat of in some form of computer network with a simulated reality, we should consider the reality we are in as real. Uh, This is similar to how I describe value. Even though without life there is no value, so it's ultimately extrinsic, within a system that has life, there are things with intrinsic properties that add value. Even though we can't know our reality is real, our experience of reality is real to us, and we can't do anything except live in our reality. So we should be pragmatic and work within the confines of said reality. Still, the correspondence theory of truth doesn't really work. It's acceptable for day-to-day mundane things, especially for those of a subjective value, like our preferences. It is true, I prefer X over Y. But when it comes down to it, the correspondence theory of truth is a bit of a tautology. X is true because it corresponds to a fact. A fact is something that is true. It is true because it corresponds to a fact. It doesn't really give us much to really discover if something is true. And all it takes is for one of those facts to not actually be a fact, and it all crumbles. The The coherence theory of truth is much like the coherence theory of knowledge. Essentially, X is true if and only if it coheres with. For example, I was robbed with a jelly bean by a talking llama with wings. If we were to see if this coheres with uh, other statements, we could say llamas do not talk, llamas do not have wings, no one sober has ever seen a talking llama with wings, Uh, no other crimes have been reported in the area involving llamas or anything llama-like, jelly bean is an edible piece of candy and not something we would generally feel threatened by, a llama couldn't hold a jelly bean, and so on. We could conclude this not to be true. I went to the beach at the weekend, or in fact, I went to the beach earlier on today. Beaches exist. You might know that your friend had a plan to go to the beach uh, at the at the weekends. They tend not to work, so it's a good time to go and do it. They might live locally to a beach, and we've seen pictures of them at the beach before. Uh, we could conclude that this is a true statement, and for them it would be even more true because they'd have actually had that experience. Of course, with coherence theories, we run into the problem of people filling the blanks with various different things. Some might fill them with their preferences, uh, others with science, another with their particular religion, etc. So with the blank being filled with a variety of different things, the truth value could actually be different. This in turn means one person could say it's true and another person says it's false, the same thing. Something cannot be both true and false, so we have an issue. Like the coherence theory of knowledge, it doesn't seem enough on its own, but it is a good check, even if it's just an internal one, to make sure everything that you think is true is coherent. Semantic theory. The semantic theory of truth, or STC, has many ingredients. The most important ones are as follows. Truth is a property of sentences. 
Relations Between Truth and Meaning, uh, Diagnosis of Semantic Paradoxes, Resolution of Semantic Paradoxes, uh, Relativization of Two Languages, uh, T-Scheme, as in A is true if and only if, uh, The Principle of Bivalence, uh, Material and Formal Adequacy of Truth Definition, Conditions Imposed on Metalanguage in Order to Obtain Truth Definition, uh, the relation between language and metalanguage, the truth definition itself, uh, maximality of uh, the set of truths in a given language, and the undefinability theorem. Now, I'm not going to go into detail into all of that, but on the article, there is a link to where you can actually read up on the semantic theory of truth. And it's one I would suggest reading again and again and again and again, because it's quite in depth, um, but definitely, definitely worth, you know, taking more than just my word of what I think of it. The semantic theory of truth is incredibly complicated in comparison to the previous two theories, which means that it ought to be closer to achieving a more accurate way to detect truth. If we examine the theory closely, it sets up a number of things that theories often struggle with, though it was also a bit uh, rigid in places and complex to apply. It works for formal language languages, but colloquialisms and the like would actually struggle to uh, apply this theory. Um, it deals well with the uh, liar's paradox, so that's like, this sentence is untrue, or I am lying now. And it deals mostly with linguistic truths and uh, does it in a way hard to apply to the external world. The pragmatic theory of truth holds, roughly, that a proposition is true if it is useful to believe. This, of course, is a deeply flawed way to look at truth. I agree that there are some truths we should deal with in a pragmatic way, as there's no way to prove otherwise. For example, our reality is real and we are not in a simulated universe. That if I slice someone's throat, this causes real pain. And it's not a, a sprite in said universe, for example. So, uh... However, in general, something's utility doesn't make it true. It may be useful for someone to view another race or gender as lesser people. That doesn't make it true. Equally, the utility of something could change per person or per time. Uh, it might be useful for a person to believe in God because it gives them strength to persevere in hard times, whereas another might be going through the same hardships and their belief causes them to stagnate uh, and, and pray for a solution, waiting for God to fix it for them. We could use things, uh, we could find use in things that are false and find things that are actually true, not useful. I ate cabbage supplied by my neighbor tonight. This is true. But under the pragmatic theory of truth, it's of very little use to anyone, except for me, knowing that they make really nice cabbages and hoping that they give me one again. <laughs> and if they offer me one, I know to say yes. So it's useful for me to know that, but the fact that my neighbor cooked me a cabbage, <laughs> no, not useful to you at all. So would you then regard it as untrue? Whilst I do think a certain amount of pragmatism is required when considering truth, I can't see the pragmatic theory being worth much by itself. Deflationary theories take a different approach. The above theories all discuss some attributes to compare the proposition to aid in determining truth. And that's not how the deflationary theories work at all. 
So the first one's redundancy theory, which speaks of certain redundant ascribing of truth values. Uh, the statement, I am hungry, or I can hear drum and bass, can be written as, it is true that I am hungry, or it is true I can hear drum and bass. But this adds nothing to the statement. It's just a verbose way of saying the same thing. Essentially, it speaks of the only time truth is really relevant is when there's an indirect reference. And at that point, that's when you should really consider truth. The performative theory of truth argues that ascribing truth to a proposition is not really characterizing the proposition itself, nor is it saying something re redundant. Rather, it is telling us something about the speaker's intentions. The speaker, through his or her agreeing with it, endorsing it, praising it, accepting it, or perhaps conceding it, is licensing our adoption of the belief in the proposition. Instead of saying, it is true that the snow is white, one could substitute, I embrace the claim that the snow is white. This, of course, could get a little silly. It requires a change in basic logic, and essentially it seems to be saying that there is no real truth, just what people accept as true, or believe to be. Perhaps it's an acknowledgement of the inability to absolutely detect what is true, and as such, truth is taken on a performative level. Yet, if I was to suddenly tell you that I do not like ska punk, it would not make it true, and nor would you accepting it. The central claim of the prosential theory is that X is true functions as a prosentence forming operator rather than a property ascribing locution. I mean, frankly, <laughs> I didn't spend much time on this one because I don't think it ties into truth all that much. It's similar to the performative theory of truth and speaks of how we are using truth rather than helping us establish truth. So in summary of the theories of truth, there are a number of theories of truth, more than I covered above, uh, but those should help you have an idea of what people think about truth and what describes truth. Um, those ones were the most commonly used or spoken about. Uh, if I'm honest, I don't think any of them really work by themselves. The semantic theory of truth is probably the closeness, uh, the closest in robustness, but it's far too rigid and difficult to apply to day-to-day -day life. Like with the theories of knowledge, all of them seem to be describing different aspects of truth, and whilst on their own do not fully work, in combination they can provide a more robust way to examine truth. I would personally be pragmatic in my approach, uh, and not saying it has to be useful to be true, just that there are certain brute facts and axioms that uh, we have to accept to get anywhere, like reality is real, or I mean, that's a presupp presupposition. Uh, and tie in, you know, con correspondence theory with coherence theory. In some respects, I do understand our conclusion of what is true is more a statement like that in performative theory, but I still think that there is an actual truth out there. Equally, I can stand up and turn that light switch off, the lights can go out, and I can say the lights are off, and this would be true. Sure, I agree that it also might be redundant to assign the truth value to this, but that doesn't make it not true. So if we conclude, at least within the, the experience of reality, some things are true, then there must be a truth. 
something that is in accord with reality that coheres with a standard, even if we are not at the point where we can be absolutely certain about that or not. So if some things are clearly true, but are so evident it's redundant discussing them, other things are so unknown, we don't know if they are in accord with reality. And at best, they are either useful to believe or say they are true is more speaking of our attitude towards the proposition than the actual truth value itself. It does seem like it's quite hard for us to fully explain, explore and discover truth. This, however, is one of the things I like about science and the theory of knowledge known as fallibilism. Whilst we might not have absolute certainty of a thing being true, only the certainty of it being false, with enough testing, reasoning, knowledge, coherence, etc., we can justify considering something as true until such time it is proved false. The more it is tested, poked, prodded, the and the longer it is not false, the higher probability of it being true is. I do believe that truth exists, that other than the really basic self-evident things like I am hungry or I like the smell of her perfume, we can't say with absolute certainty things are true, but we should be pragmatic about them and operate in a way uh, if something has a very high probability of being true, then we ought to consider it true whilst being mindful that there is all there is no certain thing or that it is no certain thing and to always keep checking on said truth to see if it holds up truth app statements in philosophy to say that a statement is truth apt is to say that it could be uttered in some context without its meaning being altered and would then express a true or false proposition truth apt sentences are capable of being true or false unlike questions or commands so essentially when something is truth apt it has a truth value it can be true or false. It is raining outside is truth apt. It will be either true or false. Right now, as Dave and I described our weather earlier, that statement would be false. Whereas saying something like, what is your favorite kind of weather or go outside are not truth apt statements. Generally, when we think about truth apt statements, we consider only the objectively true. The truth maker is not agent dependent. In other words, it is true regardless of the agent's perception. But is that always the case? A truth maker is quite self-explanatory, at least when you know what it is. It's the thing that makes something true. We generally think of a truth maker as not agent dependent, but if we are dealing with something like a preference, for example, I like the taste of chocolate, it's a statement that has a truth maker to it. It is true that the author of this article likes the taste of chocolate. This truth is agent dependent. Is there more to a subjective truth apt statement though? We often hear people talking about subjective truths, but this can sometimes be understood in the wrong way. A subjective truth doesn't have any power on the external world. That is to say, it doesn't change it. It's really just saying, it is true that X is my opinion. If someone says, it is true for me that the earth is flat, they're probably making an error in that statement. What they're actually saying is, 
it is true that it is my opinion that the earth is flat. It doesn't alter the reality around them and actually make the earth flat for them. Similarly, if we think about preferences, someone could describe their favorite music. They might say, metal is the best music in the world. This again is an error in phrasing. What they are actually saying is, it is true that I prefer metal to any other kind of music. Expressing a, pre a preference or opinion doesn't have the same sort of external truth value. It is talking purely about the agent expressing it. However, Agent A's opinion does hold a form of objectivity to Agent B. That is to say, if A expressed metal is best and B expressed no, drum and bass is best, that doesn't actually change A's opinion. They are both expressing preferences. These are only true to them, but they don't change it for each other. And this leads me on to the discussion about how truth relates to morality. Morality is the principles of good and bad, right and wrong behaviour. There are a number of different takes on morality, and most people will vehemently defend their position as if they have all the answers. And the truth is we don't. <laughs> uh, part of this issue when discussing morality is tying the concept of truth to it. Excuse me. <clears throat> As there is generally a muddy understanding of truth, and often equally a muddy understanding of morality, we find ourselves talking past each other and not having the same conversation. The first thing to consider morality is the non-cognitivist approach. Uh, they would say that there is no truth value and we are just expressing desires, emotions, intuitions, for example, emotivism. Uh, this does mean that there is nothing truly moral or immoral just what we feel to be the case. Uh, as this is an article on truth, I feel that we should probably move on for now. Uh, we can come back to that uh, another time if you so wish. So moral realism, also known as objective morality, uh, it states that there are at least some actual moral truths. That is to say, regardless of what people believe to be the case, there are some objective truths to reality. It doesn't mean all moral statements are truth at. We might be making errors by assuming some moral statements are truth at, and they could just be expressions of emotion. But there are some moral statements that hold truth value, and that is true regardless of what an agent believes. For example, these statements, uh, it is our duty to help those less fortunate than us. Torturing babies for fun is immoral. It was never moral to own slaves. Stealing is immoral, but permissible in some circumstances. They would hold a truth value, and regardless of if people believe them or not, would maintain that value. Value. Now, objective is not the same as absolute or universal. The context could change the truth value. Objectivism is just speaking about value above personal opinion. So in some summary, moral realism, there are at least some agent-independent moral truths. Moral relativism states that there is no objective truth maker. In this instance, the truth maker is the society or culture and it is also agent dependent. Any agent within said culture is held objectively to the standard of the culture, but each culture decides what is moral for it. 
Therefore, judging uh, another culture, it is immoral for X culture to kill homosexuals and atheists, is actually an error in phrasing if relativism is true, as the truthmaker is with the culture. And what you're actually saying is, I don't like it that X culture thinks it's moral to kill homosexuals and atheists. Uh, equally, as a person within your own culture, you might not agree within with certain things that are considered moral or immoral. This doesn't actually change whether it is moral or immoral. But if enough individuals agree with you, then the culture could shift, shift and head, head in a new direction. Another thing to consider is statements like slavery was always immoral do not actually make sense in a relativistic theory. If morality is relative, then the truth maker is culture and also time dependent. Therefore, if a culture deemed slavery moral at the time, it would be moral at the time. And it's just the culture shifting that has now changed the truth maker. So in summary, the truth maker comes from the culture and time. Agents within the culture are held to that standard. Moral, moral subjectivism. There are a few kinds of subjective morality. For example, emotivism could be re regarded as a form of subjectivism. However, we're going to be talking to the truth apt theory, moral subjectivism. Within moral subjectivism, we are saying that the truth maker is personal opinion. That is to say, if agent A deems action X moral, it is moral for A to do X. It does not matter what B thinks about A doing X, as the truth maker is personal opinion. Much like the music preference example I gave earlier in the article. So just, just to cover that off a little bit more, you know, uh, one person preferred a type of music over the other. It's true for them, but it being true that Agent A preferred metal doesn't make that actually the best music and doesn't make B think it's the best music, but it is the best music for A. It should be noted that moral subjectivism can actually be referred to as a form of moral relativism, except the relative scale does not relate to cultures and times, but the agents themselves. With it being a form of relativism, it holds the same issues uh, moral relativism has with judgments, except they go down to the individual level rather than the cultural. So if Agent A thinks it's moral to torture babies for fun, it becomes moral for A to torture babies for fun. If B says it is immoral to torture babies for fun, it is immoral for B to torture babies for fun. If B says it is immoral for A to torture babies for fun, under moral subjectivism, they're actually just expressing, I don't like that it is moral for A to torture babies for fun. It's actually quite common for us atheists to judge the Bible or Quran as immoral, while similarly making claims that morality is subjective. This is also an error in phrasing, because if morality is subjective, we can only speak of what is moral for us. What we are actually saying is things like, I don't like that it is moral for Yahweh to commit mass genocide. <clears throat> so in summary, moral subjectivism, the truth maker is the agent's opinion and only relates to the agent, much like a preference. So do you think there is a form of truth to moral statements? Do you think this is given by the culture, someone's opinion? Is there a value of truth uh, that, that is true that regardless of the agent's perception? 
These are all moral cognitive approaches that speak of there being truth to moral statements. The question then becomes, where is the truth maker? There are, of course, other moral theories and bits of moral terminology you can discuss. And actually, the GDC have a nice little cheat sheet you should actually check out. Um, so that's the Great Debate Community, and it's the Moral Terminological Cheat Sheet. So can a truth maker be in multiple places? The simple answer to that is no. Due to the law of non-contradiction, but there are different ways to discuss morality. So we could be charitable and say that in some contexts there could be. Uh, for example, we can talk about morality in two ways, descriptively and normatively. Descriptive statements describe how it works in practice. Essentially, descriptive mor morality describes what people believe uh, is right and wrong, but not necessarily what is right and wrong. Normative statements describe how it ought to work. It is the conclusion any two rational agents would come to given the same information. Essentially, normative morality describes what is right and wrong regardless of what people believe. Therefore, we could say that descriptive morality seems to work in a, a relativistic sense, but normatively it is objective. This doesn't actually make the truth maker in two places though, but people are operating as if the truth maker is in the culture, but maybe they ought to be operating differently. Even if you took an anti-realist approach, but thought there were truth act statements to be made about morality, uh, you could still you would still need to place the truth maker in either a subjective or relative stance. It can't be both. It could be neither if you went to a form of non-cognitivism, but we'll assume that you do think there is a, a truth to be held about moral statements, um, just not objective truths. So relative and subjective. If morality was both relative and subjective, it would mean the truth maker was both opinions and culture. So if culture C decided behavior X was immoral, X would be immoral for anyone in that culture. Agent A is in that culture, but decides behavior X is moral. This makes it moral for the agent under subjectivism, but also not moral because they are in that culture and under relativism, the culture holds the truth maker. So we're sort of caught in a contradictory loop. So if morality is relative, then X is immoral. But with enough agents thinking X was moral, the culture could shift. Once the shift is completed, X would then be moral. The truth maker is still with the culture, but the agents influence the culture. To help, this ex to help explain this a little bit better, I figured I would give an example that may be more relatable to the average person. Law. Now, the law is different to morality, and while some might equate breaking the law with doing something immoral, others might argue certain laws and punishments for breaking laws are also immoral. What we're discussing, however, is truth app statements. For example, it is illegal to murder is either true or false. The law in any particular country is relative. It can differ from country to country, and in some places even state to state. But something is either illegal or legal. So in the UK, a statement like raping is illegal is true, and a statement like eating a sandwich is illegal is false. 
The law is objective to any person within the culture. That is to say, their personal opinion will not make something uh, illegal or legal. So if a rapist uh, was caught raping someone and said, well, in my opinion, rape is legal, they wouldn't have the police go, oh, well, all right then, carry on, mate. Because the law is a standard above opinion. Of course, the opinions of people can cause some uprising over laws that they don't agree with. They could vote for people uh, they think respect their values. They try and build, pass bills and all sorts. Eventually, they could make something that is currently illegal, legal, or something that is currently legal, illegal. Smoking pot is now legal in some states in America. It wasn't legal until the culture decided to change the law, though. So regardless of what people's opinion was on that law, it didn't change until it was changed in the culture. Now, lots of people in a lot of country countries feel pot should be legal. That doesn't make it legal until the culture passes that law. So the opinions of the people on law are not truth apt. They, of course, influence the culture, but it's not until the change is brought about that the law is changed and therefore the truth is changed. Now, if you reread that or replay, uh, if you're watching or listening, the previous passage about law and replace illegal with immoral and legal with moral, you might understand the issues that I was speaking of before on the, the, the subjective and relative morality scale. So in summary of moral truths, if a statement is truth apt, then it is something that does have truth to it. If you think morality has truth apt statements, then you're taking a cognitive approach to it. Truth apt statements are capable of being true or false. They are not capable of being true and false. This would violate the law of contradiction and therefore be irrational. It also ties into the law of excluded middle, and given a particular context, it is either true or false. There is no third option like both or neither. When discussing morality, terms like subjective and relative have a specific meaning. Relative relates to the culture and time. Therefore, the truth maker for a particular context relates to that culture at a particular time. It would mean that if it was once considered by the culture that action X is moral but no longer is, it would mean that it was moral at that time in that culture. To that end, it would mean statements like slavery was never moral do not make sense because it was considered moral at that time by a culture. And if morality is relative, then the truth maker is in the time and the place. It also renders judgments of other cultures moot, as the truth mater comes from the specific culture. Saying X culture is immoral for killing homosexuals and atheists is actually an error in phrasing because the truth maker is the culture. Therefore, the statement is more like, I don't like that culture X finds killing homosexuals and atheists moral. And subjective, whilst technically a form of relativism, means based on personal opinion. The truth maker is the personal opinion rather than the cultural one. There are other forms of subjectivism, like emotivism, that are not truth apt, but we're focusing on the cognitive approach for this article. If morality is subjective, it means the truth maker is personal opinion, and therefore, if someone thought it is moral for me to torture babies, then that would make it moral for them to do so. It also makes judgments on uh, others for, uh, it also makes others' judgments on that statement being immoral an error. 
They mean, I don't like that it is moral for that person to torture babies. If you say they are both relative and subjective, that means you have the truth maker into two places. That means the culture could say it's immoral and the person could say it's moral. They can't both be true. It is therefore irrational to consider morality both relative and subjective. It is likely what you mean is opinion shifts the culture and the culture holds the truth maker. Or perhaps you don't mean that you might mean that there isn't actually a truth maker about morality at all. You could actually say we just go with we just go with it, man. It's all opinions, man. Uh, there's, there's no real truth. It's just the way we feel about it. And that could be the way you're talking about it, uh, but not realizing you're having a different conversation. You're making truth app statements where you don't actually think it's truth app. So the truth of it all, due to the nature of reality and how little we really know about it, it can be hard to really discover if something is true or not, at least with the absolute certainty one would hope for from truth. This is why, in some respects, moral relativism and subjectivism make it easier to point to where the truth is, much in a way we can talk about our personal preferences or culture's laws. When it comes to any form of objective truth, it can be hard to really know if something is true. That doesn't stop it from being true, of course. At best, I think we should be pragmatic in our approach to truth. If something can be justified well and not shown to be false, then it is fair to consider it true. But until we have a better understanding of reality, we should always be checking to see what we once thought was true still holds up to scrutiny. When having a conversation, make sure you're clear in your terminology. Sometimes using the underlying meanings is better than using terminology, as it will explain your precise position. Using terms like relative and subjective, for example, carry a specific meaning within morality and speak to a form of truth, yet you could be using these terms in a way that is atypical for the topic, causing a breakdown in communication. As we see from our examination of truth, it is mostly about language, as apart from things like preferences or equations in maths and logic, we can find it hard to pin down if something is definitely true. If we are also muddy with our language, it can be hard to pin down what we're saying at all. <laughs> uh, blimey. <laughs> well done. Uh, I, I only screwed it up like four or five times, I think. <laughs> That's better than I usually do. <laughs> I didn't realize I waffled on quite so much with that one. I was like, yeah, short article. I'll read that out. No problem. But no. What a twat. <laughs> no, it was good. It was a good article. <laughs> oh, thank you. Though you, you kind of have to say that. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> so, uh, hopefully people found the article somewhat informative um if there's any critique of course please let me know i'm not above reproach um before i get on to any of the questions dave did, did you have anything you wanted to add to it no it was a good article i mean it's the basics obviously and it, an introduction to the ideas and stuff like that so yeah but it, it was good yeah, I, I, to be honest, I even find the basics of truth actually quite complicated <laughs> when you start looking into it. It was, it was really like I, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look into truth. That's an easy one. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> um, and I think that's why I also tied it back into morality because that is 
one of the few topics that I feel comfortable with. <laughs> so it helps yeah. me me explain it and understand it. That's the best way to do things is to run stuff through something you already understand and see how it kind of coheres with that. And it can help you pick out the bits where you don't understand and where you do understand. But truth is complicated. Hang on. One yeah. Minute. One minute. Okay. I'll, I'll just play this then. So uh, <laughs> Greg says, I'm not clever enough to write that article. <laughs> hey, my name's on it. <laughs> <laughs> I just happened to read a lot whilst I was writing it on places like yeah. uh, IEP and stuff like that. <laughs> he definitely wrote it because he <laughs> ran it by me. <laughs> Ooh, the meaning of truth. Blimey. And that's just on what it means to say something is truth, not just what truth is. It It kind of goes with the correspondence theory and evidentialism. But yeah, it's fucking massive and it, it's barely even an introduction. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> uh, yeah, Greg, don't worry. I, I know you're playing. I know you're playing. To be honest, though, I'm not clever enough to write anything more than advanced than that anyway. <laughs> As Dave said, that was an intro. <laughs> and the intro almost melted my brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but if you ever do want to know anything more advanced about it, you know, let us know and I'll make Dave do a, a slideshow on it. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> we can uh, get into the whole truth is the set of all propositions that exist within some actual or possible world. And to say that a statement is true is simply to say that it exists within this set of propositions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Is truth simply a, a property of a semantic, or is it something that actually exists in a metaphysical sense? Uh, right. So, scrolling back up. Um, so, yes, who wrote this? Yeah, me. <laughs> you say I can't write that well, Greg. Actually, if you noticed, there were so many spelling errors mis spelled words and all sorts but thankfully i managed to talk over most of them so if you were actually reading the article along with me you'll have noticed that i didn't actually read half of the article because it was so poorly written uh, unfortunately my my dyslexia does uh make it really difficult which is quite funny seeing as i enjoy blogging and writing so much but yes <laughs> um what does it say about you if you agree with this? Oh, <laughs> well, all of it. How much of it did you agree with it, Greg? I'd be interested to know. Um, <laughs> it is true that it is immoral to expose our children to country music. <laughs> I mean, that don't impress me much. <laughs> and that's not even real country. Oh, so many offenses caused. I'd 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 have to disagree just because I like to be disagreeable. <laughs> I, I, like I say, country music is um, proof that objective morality exists. <laughs> so you did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did object address objective versus absolute and universal. So in regards to that, it's one of those things that really, really, really frustrates me. Um, in conversations, mainly with fellow atheists, because they tend to go on, well, if it's objective, it's always true. And if it's contextual, then that makes it subjective. And you're like, 
No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, I, I have had many a conversation about that. I only glossed over it in, in that one uh, because it, the idea wasn't to really hammer that part home. And hopefully I didn't hammer home my opinions on morality too hard in there. There are a couple of bits in there where I thought that you could probably feel what my opinion on morality was. And I was trying to be so level with it, but it's amazing how your bias still comes through all the time. So if, if you're not aware, uh, I would say I was a moral realist. Um, I do think that there are some objective truths to morality. I would say some things might not actually be truth app statements in that way. There are some things that we just think about and or we feel, uh, and there is an emotive part to morality. And I think that descriptively, it's a mixture of all types of subjectivism, relativism, uh, and objective uh, moral judgments and values. But um, I do think it's you know, mostly objective, normatively speaking. Uh, it's so weird sitting at the bar and having my son pass me a THC vape pen and it's legal. Yes, <laughs> that would be a really odd experience for us as well. Although on that subject, right, every time I go on holiday, no matter where I am, I can have my kids with me, right? <laughs> I always get offered drugs. Just I just look like that guy. <laughs> It used to be like that for me, but now I can't seem to get anybody to offer me drugs, and it's painful. Do do you do, do you think they look like you look like the old Bill? I probably do in my old age now. Yeah, you do look quite serious. <laughs> I always look quite serious. I'm a, I'm a philosopher. <laughs> there is no such thing as absurdism. Only just <clears throat> pure, honest to goodness seriousness. <laughs> as you can tell from all my statements. <laughs> Tyler says, uh, to me, it seems like moral relativism is a form of moral objectivism. The reason that isn't the case is because it can change from culture to culture. It just means that the agents within the culture are held to that standard. So it it is objective to the agents within the culture, just like it is for law. It's objective for the agents within the culture, but it isn't, moral objectivism as in moral realism it just shows that you know the agent's opinion can't shift the cultures yeah it's basically um it, like you said it's still objective within that culture to some degree but the what is moral is still attitude dependent it's just that it's the overwhelming majority of attitudes within that culture that makes it it's basically an ad populum. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Except not fallacious. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing uh, we've addressed a number of times. Like, not all fallacies. Oh, sorry. Not all things listed as fallacies are actually fallacious. You know, um, it's like we've discussed, you know, listening to expert advice from an expert who's an expert in the field that they are talking about is not fallacious. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Greg says, I tend to use the term intersubjective in terms of cultural norms. So I agree with that to a certain extent. Um, you're talking there about the fact that people have agreed about it between themselves. However, that doesn't necessarily 
say that that is what is the case. So if you're talking about um, moral relativism, just because a group of people might agree that, that you know this is wrong, doesn't actually make it wrong until the, the the culture actually shifts. So you could also say that laws are intersubjectively agreed upon, but they're not necessarily agreed upon by the culture. They're agreed upon by a governing body that has been elected in the culture. And the people within the culture can try and influence that law to because they might agree with it, but it's almost a tiered level system. And for a law to actually be passed or changed, um, it's a bit more than it being purely intersubjective. The semantic issue I most commonly encounter in conversations about morality is equating objective with absolute and universal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or another one I encounter as well along those lines is um, because a theist says morality can only be objective if it's from God, therefore the atheist turns around and goes, well, it's subjective then. <laughs> like, Really? <laughs> ah, so so truth is your favourite metaphysical topic, is it? Well, then you could have probably told us a thing or two, Greg. Um, perhaps you should come on and have a conversation with us. I know that our show times might be a little bit early for you, but we could always do, well, once I've moved out of this room and I've got the office, uh, we could always do a, a later one and you can tell us some shit if you like, instead of us telling it to you. But you say, uh, truth is that which best comports with the reality I experience. So the only problem there is obviously, well, what if you're drunk? What if you're high? What if you're um, having a meltdown? What if you're in a seeing rage? What if you're in fight or flight mode? Um, the experience itself isn't quite enough. But I will agree that describing truth that way works for your mundane things. You know, I am holding this cider and this cider cost 86 pence at the local Tesco. And I know this because I've been to the Tesco and seen that it's cost 86 pence. And... Uh, that's the sort of cider I can afford. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you say absolute truth is that which best comports exactly with reality. Yeah, but we can't get a read on what reality exactly is. So that's the thing. And isn't truth supposed to be an absolute in itself? So I think there, with your two statements, Greg, you're talking about your first one, um, about the reality that you experience. You're talking about what you believe to be true, which is fair. And the second one, you're talking about what actually is true. The problem is getting from what we believe to be true to actually going, yes, this is true. Although Dave says, uh, I usually go with a statement is true if it accurately reflects that which it attempts to describe, which again, I can go with. But again, if you're on acid. <laughs> but it wouldn't be if you just said there is a bear over there, unless you expanded the statement to be, I am hallucinating a bear over there, then it mm. wouldn't accurately reflect. But it might to you. <laughs> yeah, but it wouldn't be an accurate reflection, yeah. But you'd need that outside eye to be able to say. Yeah, yeah but if truth is a property of a semantic property then 
Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just being a bastard. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Uh, Greg, don't worry. Uh, he's, he's had to shoot briefly. He's got a uh, video chat with his uh, son and daughter-in-law. So um, we have been answering you, but Greg, don't worry about it too much. Uh, you can always wind back the video <laughs> and, and have a listen. Um, but... Yeah. <laughs> so Tyler says, so what about the PC versus console thing from earlier? It was a joke, but it could be interesting to relate to that. Okay. I'm scrolling up. Um, so this, it, was it this one? The truth is PC is simply better for first-person shooter games. Joan knows. So I think, actually, uh, if we were to examine this, we would have two standards to compare it against. We've got a preferential standard about what might be best for the agent because that's what they're used to. Right? Dave tends to prefer using a controller, even on PC, whereas I would use a keyboard and mouse for an FPS. Dave would probably, because he is more practiced on the controller, be better using the controller than he would be the keyboard and mouse because that's what he's used to doing. But I think if he practiced, and let's just say the time he had put into the controller, he had also put the exact same amount of time into the keyboard and mouse, he would be able to be far more accurate, especially because you can have mice like these. And these mice have a variety of different buttons and things that you can use. Uh, one of them's fallen off through overuse. Um, and different uh, sensitivities, so you can make it so you can look around really quick. And then you've got this button here, which means that you can suddenly slow down your cursor. So say if you've got a sniper and you're scanning for someone and then all there's someone and then slowly you're tracking them run. And so I think for a first person shooter on your accuracy and overall, you can definitely have a higher performance with the same amount of time put in. But I'd say there's other judgments that you can take into account as well. And if you like playing with your friends and all of your friends have consoles and you're the only person with a PC and the game is not cross compatible, then will you enjoy it as much because you'll be playing on your own and they'll all be playing together? There's the benefits of being able to sit on your couch. And I know you can with Steam boxes and all sorts like that. And uh, But console is quick and easy. There's lots of benefits to consoles. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a diehard PC fan. And if I ever meet someone who's like a, a complete console head, I go into complete <laughs> PC is the best master race sort of mode. I hate doing it, but it just, it turns me that way when someone's doing that like a console. But there are a lot of benefits to a console um, that you, you don't necessarily get uh, with a PC, especially as they tend to just work and they just tend to just work for X number of years and then you upgrade and it's not a massive upgrade. You're not spending the amount that you're spending on your GPUs, uh, your processors and your RAM and, oh, look, I've had to upgrade my processor. Now I need to do my entire motherboard and, and my RAM because we're on a new generation of that. And, you know, you spend 500 quid or whatever it is for a console these days and there you go, job done. Every five years or so, you, you know, I think it is. I mean, I haven't had a console since the PS3. Um, 
but that's that's what you tend to do. So it depends on what you're actually, what standard you're applying for better. So if we're talking purely about the ability to be accurate and play the game well, then yes, I think it would be objectively true that a PC is better for that. But there are so many other factors that you could take into account for the standard that you could make an argument that a console is better, at least in certain areas. And if those other areas are more important to you than just being really fast and accurate and having a, a high kill count, etc., then maybe a console is better. <laughs> Sorry, I tended to go on quite a bit. Hey, Icarus, how you doing? <laughs> uh, you are right, actually. You've raised another point, which I didn't even consider. I did mention there's different standards, but I think you get the games cheaper on PC and you can have all the mods. Yes, you can. Uh, uh, as I said, I prefer PC anyway. But sometimes you, there's exclusives on consoles that don't come out on PC, or you have to get an emulator for PC. But there's another benefit for PCs. You've got all your emulators. You know, I mean... Even though in my in my garage I've got my my NES, my SNES, and all the consoles and games I've always had, they're actually all on my PC right now, and I do tend to play with a on a controller with them as well because they're console games, and most console games work better with a controller, like Mario. Um, but yeah, and the, the games by the time they do come out on PC, they do tend to be cheaper, and especially if you get a Steam deal or a humble bundle or anything like that, again. There's so many benefits to that. So you might play more for your machine, but you'll be paying less for your games. Yes, uh, you're right there, Tyler. The issue is what better means. So what standard would you be applying to in, in that? Um, as I said, if you're talking purely about the, the, the ability to play the FPS, then I would say PC is definitely better. And I think as well that that's highlighted even more when you do have crossplay. So if you have a PC user playing against an Xbox user, um, the PC user will win. It just will. Um, so yeah. Oh, in fact, <laughs> funny enough, Greg says, my kids claim it's easier to kill the console players in cross-platform games. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> cool. So, you know, yeah, we, we we briefly mentioned an ad popular earlier. Well, there's a, a consensus of two so far. <laughs> and he's talking about his kids. So it's an anecdote, but, you know, his kids are saying that. <laughs> so can we apply a truth value to what we're saying? <laughs> awesome. I love how an article on truth and morality turned into is PC better. <laughs> What do you think, Dave? Yeah. Well, we always go on sidetracks. <laughs> we do. And I know you tend to prefer the uh, the controller for most things, but um, would you generally conclude that the, uh, that the PC is better than the console? Depends on the quality of the PC. It does, and the generation of the game you're a, playing. Yeah, if you're playing on a potato and you're trying to play Resident <laughs> Evil... Eight or whatever it's up to now, Resident Evil Village, it's not going to be as good as the experience on a PlayStation 5. Yeah. So again, so, yeah. Uh, it comes back to what, what Tyler was saying. It depends what better means, and it can differ yeah. on the context like we, we were speaking about. Um, 
I mean, if you talk about ideal conditions PCs, then the PC is better than most consoles. But if you're talking about what people have in their home on average, like what a university student might have might just be a terrible laptop with a terrible sort of built-in graphics Intel thing, and that wouldn't be better. No, you're right there. I mean, we could even say, like, my PC is probably about 10 years old now. And with a little tweaking, in fact, even if I just replaced the GPU, um, it would probably be um, better than maybe a PS5. But at the moment, it's not as good. Yeah, my one downstairs is probably about as good as a PS4 because um, it doesn't have ray tracing or anything like that built in. Mm. But my laptop is probably just in between an Xbox 360 and an Xbox One. That's fair. Yeah. And you know what? Like, I mean, I've, I've been fantasizing about building a new PC for ages. And the new PC I would be, build would be like having something probably four times as powerful as the PS5. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it would last that long. And that's, that's sort of how I tend to do go with my PCs. Um, uh, there was a point where I would sort of upgrade incrementally, but they've got to a point where the components are, I mean, hard drives are cheap as anything, but things like processors and uh uh gpus are so expensive now that by the time you're going well i've spent that much money i may as well upgrade the whole machine which is why i don't upgrade for 10 years at a time yeah but they last to give you an example of how old my pc downstairs is it's a ryzen 5 first gen um and a nvidia 1060 so it's pretty old and it's three gig 1060 and this one is a the laptop is a Ryzen second gen with a ATI RX 560X built in. Yeah, nice. I mean, mine's mine's even older than that though. I've got uh, an, uh, a fourth gen i7 in this one um, with a 980. <laughs> so yeah, I did have uh, an ATI card in it, which is brilliant, but I was having some problems and uh, the power supply basically overloaded it. So the power supply died and the video card died. And thankfully, a friend of mine, in fact, Henry, has lent me his 980 for this. And I, it's been about a year. I feel really bad, <laughs> but I can't afford to buy <laughs> a new one. And uh, yeah, <laughs> he's uh, is really, really, really nice <laughs> letting me have that. But yeah, I can't wait to get... Um, uh, new processor. I'm definitely going AMD as well in in the in the new world because they are. Uh, it's objectively true that they tend to be better for the uh, multi-thread stuff. And seeing as we do a lot of uh, streaming and video editing and audio editing and stuff like that, it would actually be <clears throat> efficient for me to have that sort of a processor. Whereas the Intels tend to be uh, it better at the single core stuff now. There are reports that the newest Intel processor is almost as good on the multi-thread stuff and way better on the single core stuff. But I love the fact that the chat has just turned into everybody geeking out on uh, <laughs> on what sort of machine that they've got. This is amazing. <laughs> Why have we never had a conversation about this stuff before? <laughs> All right, that's it. Next week. Screw the plans that we've got. <laughs> PC chats with Dave and Joe. <laughs> so, I mean, 
I'm, I'm with you somewhat, Tyler. You say you're a mid-range guy and you can't afford the high end, so you settle with uh, 1080p. You got a 2060 Super and a Ryzen 2 600, so you can run most games great at 1080p. I mean, that's a fair way to do it. And to be honest, that's probably equivalent to console performance that you're getting right there, I reckon. Uh, at least modern consoles should be better than the older ones, obviously. So uh, there's nothing wrong with having a mid-range machine as well. And I reckon your machine, for doing some of the things that I need to do, like the uh, the video editing stuff, you're probably better than, than my one is right now. I mean, I've got, what, about a 10-year-old processor in mine, and it's still good, and it's still really good for gaming. Like, I, I was surprised when I played Cyberpunk um, that it handled it so well. I thought it was going to die and just be like, uh, uh, uh. but um, it can't. I can't uh, stream new games as, as the same time as playing them. Unfortunately, um, even Overwatch, I had to really, really, really turn the graphics down and everything like that, and it just got to a point where I was like, nah, I can't. I can't stream games and can't stream modern games um, until such a time that I uh, upgrade. Yeah. Although, I mean, when we played a bit of Civilizations, Dave, it managed to sort of handle that, didn't it? Um, it worked all right, yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, Sid is a pretty CPU-intensive game. Yeah, but it's not also graphically intensive. And I think no. that's that's the other side of it. It's when you've got something that's both CPU-intensive and graphically intensive and you're trying to stream so and i was pulling in your data you know but yeah um i mean it's all more powerful than my raspberry pi yeah that's true what have you played on uh on that though um not really a lot because i mostly <laughs> use it for a media thing but it'll do emulation up to about psp oh nice so it's not too bad no, and it'll play like GTA Vice City, GTA 3, um, lots of Linux games, that kind of stuff. Oh, uh, wicked. And if I really want to, I can use it to make my PC downstairs play games, and it just streams to the Pi and play over the network. Like, you know, using the stream, Steam streaming thing that they've got. Yeah. Oh, wicked. Uh, Icarus says, uh, next week, Marvel versus DC, what is objectively better? Well, uh, Icarus, you're going to have to qualify what we mean by better. <laughs> and objectively. <laughs> but it's DC. Uh, it's Marvel. Yeah. <laughs> and are we talking animated? Are we talking film? Are we talking I, I assume we were talking graphic my, novels. I, 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 say, I thought they were talking films. If you go back into the comic books or you go back older and you go into animated and stuff like that, I'm, I might change my mind on it a little bit. Um, so there you go. Context can change, but that doesn't stop it from being objective. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although I still think that that probably wouldn't be objective. <laughs> yeah, I must admit, um, John Monitors is incredibly useful, Tyler. Um, 
actually, I, I was really lucky um, because I work from home. Work sent me two monitors and I already have my monitor here. And I, I, I'm not using the third monitor at the moment because I don't have the space. Uh, but when I get my office back, I will have three monitors set up again. And I tell you what, having three monitors, especially when you're you're doing the streaming stuff, it's really helpful because I have so many little bits. You know, I've got the Discord and then I've got the chat and then I've got this thing over here and that web page and the the streaming software and it gets really really complicated and even with two monitors it's actually a little bit difficult to keep on top of it all so i'm really looking forward to having a third monitor back <laughs> so uh good question icarus what did you say about god's morality is it objective or subjective i didn't cover it is the truth <laughs> of the matter and if you'd like to know if God um, has created a standard of morality, right? Now, we can come to the next bit that you're already thinking about him creating it. We'll come to that. But if God has created a standard of morality for humans, right? Obviously, we are presupposing God exists. I think every single one of us here, um, except for Cafe, how are you doing, uh, is an atheist or some form of non-theist. If God has created this standard of morality, then it is objective to all humans, right? It is a standard that is above humans' opinion. It's like law for humans in a particular culture, right? We are held to that standard. Our opinion of that standard doesn't matter. Well, I don't think that that should be illegal. Doesn't suddenly make it illegal behavior. And it's the same thing. So if there is a morality set by God, it would be objective to us humans. Now, the next part is you're thinking, well, God created it, so it's ultimately subjective because it's all based on God's opinions. And that depends on the God. Because if you're talking about an all-knowing God that knows absolutely everything, then it's not mere opinion that God is telling us. God knows what is right and wrong just because he knows absolutely everything. Then <laughs> you have to say, well... If God knows this, is that saying that morality is actually something outside of God? And <laughs> it's actually a completely different thing. Morality exists whether God is there or not, and God just happens to know what is right or wrong. Or is morality something God created? So, <laughs> I mean, that whole conversation can get more and more confusing. But the, the short answer is, if God has created a standard, it is objective to humans um, so divine command theory would be we're supposed to be held to that standard. Uh, Cafe says, uh, I would argue that God's morality is boundless and non-dual. That is to say, transcendent of subject-object dichotomy. Um, are you streaming from a storage room? Is it coming through really dodgily, um, Icarus? Um, is my mic sounding awful tonight? I haven't really paid attention to my mic position tonight. Sorry. I think it's more of the rack of towels behind you and or uh, a pillow. It's a pillow. It's a pillow. It's a couple of pillows and a duvet. It pretty much is a storage room. It is a um, a uh, it's a it's going to be our spare bedroom. So this is my office at the moment because we are doing a garage conversion, but it's not ready. So uh, you may as well call it a storage room if you want. Um, 
LB, great to see you here. Uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it and enjoy the conversation and things are heating up as we're coming to the end. Um, Icarus says, if objective means mind independent, then God's morality is subjective. Dave, do you want to field that one? Because I feel like I've been talking a hell of a lot. Sorry, I missed that. Uh, Icarus says, well, if objective means mind independent, then God's morality is subjective. Yeah, objective doesn't necessarily mean that it's mind independent. That is one definition of um, objective, but there's also attitude independent to be objective. And generally, when we're speaking of in morality, when we're speaking of objective, we're speaking of attitude independent. Yep. So what we're saying there is it's wrong regardless of what your attitude is in regards to it. So if um, you believe it's moral to um, torture babies, right, that doesn't actually change whether it is actually moral, if it is objective in that regard. So, and if God, as I was speaking before, if God knows everything, if we're talking about a God that knows absolutely everything, then God knows what is and isn't moral. And regardless of what God believes in this regard, it wouldn't make it. So it's attitude independent. And our attitude about God's morality doesn't change it. So it's still objective for us. I don't think, as I said, I think pretty much every single one of us here is an atheist. So we are hypothesizing and trying to give you, sorry, Dave. You just insulted Lord Bryant. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he's a practical atheist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh, Cafe says, uh, in Christian theology, God's morality is expressed as agape. Or is that agape? Is that how it's pronounced? I'm not sure I usually pronounce it agape, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, I mean, looking at the accent that he's put on the word, it would be agape. Yeah. Or agape. <laughs> Putting on, yeah. <laughs> is there an objectively true way to say that? <laughs> So uh, Icarus says, isn't that absolute morality instead of objective morality? That's a good one. So if you're thinking about morality coming down from God, if God knew absolutely everything, then it probably would be an absolute standard. But it would still be something. So something being objective isn't necessarily uh, absolute, but something being absolute entails it being objective. Ah, and Frida, you miss it again. <laughs> nah, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. Uh, it has been way too hot. And I, I, I'll be honest, if it, if it wasn't for the fact that I, I didn't have the outside office, um, I'd consider streaming later through this heat as well. I think the, the pair of us would benefit from a later stream at the moment. Um, switching to, to 10 o'clock or something like that would be absolutely lovely. <laughs> So uh, Jiva G says, attitude comes from the mind. I don't see what the difference is there. Do you want to fill that one, Dave? Okay. Um, if you think about something like consequentialism or deontology, both of those systems come from a mind. So they've been devised by a mind. But if they are true, then they are true independent of attitude. So even if you say, well, no, I don't agree that... Um, it is our duty to always tell the truth. If the ontology is true, your attitude towards that doesn't really matter. 
So there is a difference between the attitude depending on a mind and a system depending on a mind. Does that sort of clear that one up for you, Jeeva? Well, another way to look at it is the law. The laws of a country come from a mind, but they're attitude independent. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, even in the article we were discussing earlier, we gave the example of a, a rapist, right? And actively raping someone and the police coming along. Oh, 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 what's all this then? And uh, the rapist going, oh, well, I think rape should be uh, legal. Now, the police wouldn't go, oh, okay, we'll get on with it then. It's the law has come from the minds of people but it's attitude independent, right? It doesn't matter what people believe about the law. So if we take that up to a system of morality or a God's morality, you know, the attitude about it is different. So that's what the difference is. <laughs> LB's decided to pipe up. <laughs> yes, he's a deist. So he's a naturalistic theist, if you think about it. That's what deism is. Yeah, and LB, I think that you should still not be such a lazy bum and come on and talk to us about deism at some point because we'd be really interested in hearing your points of view. And I'm sure someone like you wouldn't find, you know, installing Discord that complicated. It's pretty simple. It does it all for you. Also, naturalistic theist is a funny way to spell practical atheist. So LB says, is it really a true dichotomy between objective and subjective morality? It seems like no matter the position, it boils down to those two. I'd say no. Do you want to field it first, though, Dave? Um, I guess it depends on how you're using the term objective and subjective. Either something is independent of attitudes or it's based on attitudes. Um, So you could say that's a dichotomy. Um, But as we discussed through the article, there's different types of subjective morality. So if you're talking about moral subjectivism, obviously there's a truth maker, which is opinion. But if you're talking emotivism, then there's no truth. truth. So you're almost talking cross purposes there. Yeah. As I say, morality is a very complicated subject. And if you boil it down to something really simple, you've probably boiled it down far too much. (laughs) Yeah. And I actually think from looking into truth, that truth is more complicated than morality. (laughs) Yes and no. But yeah, truth is more complicated than people think it is. Yeah. Because they just go by this everyday experience of when they say something is true they mean this rough thing about it um but then they come up with ideas like something is true if you believe it's true or <laughs> you can have subjective truths but then when you ask them they say truth is something that is describing the universe and not based on personal opinion so how can you have subjective truths <laughs> yeah uh we've had a weird request that's our only fans <laughs> <laughs> LB wants me to try and do an American accent. So um, should we be like, oh, my God, that's like totally awesome. I like totally, totally want to suck your cock, that sort of American accent. Or should we go for a more, uh, hey, man, nice shirt. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not particularly great with accents. There's, there's got to be, we could talk like we're down south, get the southern drawl. Quite like the southern accent, actually. Can be that uh, one was terrible compared to the first two. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I can't think of any other places in America. I tell you what, right? America is really limited for accents. There's only like five or six that I can think of in this entire massive place. And there's like hundreds in the UK in such a tiny little island. You can have four accents in one city. Yeah, quite easily. <laughs> um, yeah. Apparently, uh, the reason I ask is because it's for Andrew. Um, what, he wanted me to do accents for you? Or was that on your previous question about <laughs> objective versus subjective? <laughs> Apparently, the first accent was morally wrong. <laughs> Tyler, uh, it was me bringing back memories of me being really drunk. Um, <laughs> working at the local public toilet. <laughs> Actually, when I went out to school in America, I, I, uh, I'd been at a, a, a private school all my life. I'd been at all boys schools all my life. And all of a sudden I'm thrown into a situation where I'm surrounded by, by girls and, there was uh, this girl that came up to me and she just started talking. She was like, oh, my God, you're English. Like, can we, like, go and make out? And I was just like, um, no, thank you. <laughs> I didn't know how to react. <laughs> uh Bible says I have to unlurk a minute to speculate which American media Joe consumes. Um <laughs> Bad kinds? <laughs> the porn hub kind. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, LB, when you say you're a moral cognitivist, I mean, what that means is you think that there is a, that there is truth to moral statements. But what that doesn't tell us is where you think the truth is. So... Uh, there's where he says he's an ethical subjectivist. He could be a moral cognitivist too, <laughs> or he could be a non-cognitivist. If he thinks that there is a uh, truth maker, but the truth is um, personal opinion, then he's talking about moral subjectivism. But if he's saying, well, no, it's just us talking about our desires and emotions and things like that, then he's probably a motivist and there is no truth maker. For you saying you're a moral cognitivist, you could be saying that you think that uh, moral relativism is what it is, and that's the, the culture that makes it true. Or you could be going for moral realism and saying that there is at least some moral truths that are above personal opinion. Um, and yes, I do like uh, Icarus's question to you, LB, about uh, where morality comes from in the deist world. So again, I think you just need to come on and have a conversation with us about deism. And I, I do, I will promise that I will be on my almost best behavior. <laughs> uh, and Icarus, uh, Icarus says that he's a moral non-cognitivist, but you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Um, I, I think that about most moral non-cognitivists, personally. Uh, <laughs> I'm just playing. I think there's plenty of good arguments for non-cognitivism. And I think that there is... I think that there is... Part of morality does have some form of non-cognitivism to it. I think morality started that way in some regards. 
um, <laughs> in not every regard. But so I think there's there there, there are good arguments either side. Um, I just don't find uh, non-cognitivism as um, convincing. Um, I think morality is incredibly complicated, and as I mentioned earlier, I do lean towards um, moral realism. But with the fact that it's so hard to even know what truth is and how to work out if something is actually true, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but as I said, just because we can't detect what's true doesn't stop something being true either. So there you go. Tyler has made a request that I go back and reread the entire article in an American accent. Um, <laughs> which one, Tyler? Uh, <laughs> like the oh my god, Valley Girl type accent? <laughs> Amish Dutch. Sorry? The Amish Dutch accent. Oh, is that what it is? No, no, I'm saying that's the accent you need to use. Oh, okay. I don't know what that one is, I'm afraid. Go on, do it for us. I can't do it. I'm <laughs> accents. We can pretend we're from Boston. <laughs> <laughs> it could be joiks from New York. <laughs> There's something for you coming from LB as well. He says, for you, Dave, I watch Emerson from Twitter, his testimony on why he's an atheist, and I was blown away that he provided a justification. <laughs> it just makes him proud. Yeah, that's something that many of us uh, atheists on the internet are terrible for, um, not providing any sort of justification but emerson's a good a good guy uh you should check out his podcasts and video streams um if you haven't already <laughs> but uh yeah <laughs> uh apparently uh emerson uh didn't simply say not convinced no evidence he gave real philosophy for his atheism and that's something else i mean to be honest you, you should know that emerson's a really great guy anyway i'm sure you've had a number of conversations um, he's definitely someone who's well justified in his position and I think he's quite a bit brighter than me too. So uh, you should definitely check him out. Sorry, I was just responding to LB in the chat. So um, Dave, did you have anything you wanted to add tonight or are there any people out there that have anything else they want to ask before we finish for the night? Uh, nothing from me. All right. Well, in that case, I think that we may well wrap things up for the night. It has been... Uh, rather warm one <laughs> yeah and uh i'm i'm quite eager to go and drench myself in uh in water or or have a shower as it's also known um <laughs> it's so warm the fan is blowing hot air onto me and just doing it the opposite of what it's supposed to do <laughs> you need to get one of those sprays where you just get some water in it <laughs> yeah um but awesome. So yeah, Tuesdays and Thursdays about 8.30 p.m. Uh, GMT, that's 3 p.m. Eastern is when we tend to stream. Um, next week, hopefully we're going to be covering off uh, uh, something with Philip. He wants to go over logic and uh, dialotheism or something. Um, dialotheism. Yeah. I looked into that a little while ago. I wasn't convinced. <laughs> I don't know much about it which is why I'm looking forward to Philip coming on. Yeah. 
And then we're also going to be covering off uh, the next part of testimony. So I don't know if you saw the video with Bearded Heretic and us. Um, he basically did uh, testimony and false memory and things like that from a psychological perspective. But we'd like to cover it off from a uh, Humean perspective as well. So uh, Dave's going to be taking us through that. And if we can, we're going to try and get Andrew on with us as well. So we will be doing a little bit more on testimony. Um, just in case you're not aware, babies, no, they are not atheists. And rocks, no, they are not atheists either. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that I feel the need to say that every stream. <laughs> and if you believe that and you think that and you're subscribed to us, please unsubscribe. <laughs> uh, as, as Bible has just said, uh, we're way undersubbed. Uh, but maybe that's because we keep telling people that babies are not atheists. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I'd rather do that than sell out, though. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, thank you everybody in the chat who has uh, joined us um, tonight and uh, hopefully you found absolutely uh, truth <laughs> in something <laughs> or that you found that truth, is, whilst might be absolute, is hard for us to know if it is or it isn't. And you understand how truth works with propositions, how it works with truth apt statements and how it can relate to morality. Although how some people actually think that there is no truth to morality whatsoever. Um, and also you have now realized that if you want the best performance when you're playing a game, you should do it on a PC <laughs> as long as it's a relatively high-end one. <laughs> You've also learned that I'm absolutely terrible at accents and uh, <laughs> Dave is desperate to get away from me. <laughs> so uh, thank you absolutely everyone. Honestly, it's brilliant. And those of you who are watching the rerun or listening to the podcast version of this, thank you too. Um, I hope you did enjoy the stream and you did learn something. But if not, send us some feedback and tell us what you would like to know in the future. You've been watching the Fresh Air Sci-Fi Show. I'm Joe. I'm Dave. Have yourself a good night all. Good night all. Oh, are you? Oh, hi. Oh, hi.